All right. Mark 1, 1 to 13 uh, says this. And I don't, I don't have this listed. It's kind of all throughout. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare, the, prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with, who, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, so grateful for uh, the testimony of the gospels uh, of each of them and the opportunity to, to hear Mark's testimony and to be challenged and encouraged by it. Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, challenge our hearts, um, just stir us up with a passion for you. Um, Lord, Lord, take us deeper into our relationship with you. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to lift you up in our lives. We want to see you lifted up in this world. Um, so, God, we pray that as we look at this word today, you would encourage us toward that end. Um, help us cast our cares and our circumstances and all our lives before you, the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, some introductory notes to jump into the book of Mark for you. We're going to talk about uh, the writer, um, the kind of place and time of, of the, uh, the writing of the book of Mark. Um, some things we know about Mark and, and some things we know about kind of when this gospel was recorded. Uh, gospel, you know, Mark is one of four gospels, as you know. Each of the writers have kind of a different take, a uh, different style of writing, different approach to tell the story of how Jesus came to earth and how he died for our sins and how he was risen from the grave. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have a different perspective, kind of different take on how things went exactly. So a lot of times people look at the Gospels and like, why doesn't this line up with that exactly in our Western minds? Well, it turns out these are four different people telling the same story. And has anyone ever, you know, heard the same story from four different people and gone, oh, wow, they all matched up perfectly, like every single detail, okay? Um, so you're going to see as you try and harmonize the Gospels, not everything is perfectly aligned, but it's pretty well aligned. So um, so look at the big picture and see that this is Mark's testimony of how things went. Uh, so we know some things about Mark. We know him to be uh, most likely John Mark, who's talked about throughout the book of Acts, uh, as well as in the epistles. And so we have a number of times where Mark comes up, uh, Acts chapter 12, 12. Uh, it says this of him, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many other gathered and were praying. So we know Mark from chapter 12 of Acts. Uh, we also know that he traveled with Saul and had a relationship there with Saul, um, uh, Acts 12, 25. Uh, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Uh, Acts chapter 13, 13 to 14. Now Paul and his companions, companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came down to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, Seems like a very uh, innocuous statement but that Mark left, but this has caused some tension between Paul and Mark, uh, Acts 15, 37 to 41. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. 
Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So in Mark's relationship with Paul, we see, okay, he's serving with Paul, and at some point they have some sort of disagreement. We don't actually know the nature of that, just that Mark didn't want to go the direction that Paul was going, felt he needed to go a different direction. And that caused a little bit of rift between Paul, so that later, when they had an opportunity to go again together, Paul says, no, I'm not taking Mark. He deserted me once. I'm not taking him this time. There was some disagreement there, right? Um, so that's Paul's, uh, Mark's relationship with Paul. We also, though, um, in a spirit of unity with the church, see Paul reconcile that with Mark. Uh, in Colossians 4.10, Philemon 24, 2 Timothy 4.11, Mark is referenced again. Colossians 4.10 says, Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. So at some point, likely in Rome, uh, Mark is now with Paul again, serving Paul while he's in prison. Okay? And uh, so if Mark comes to you from me, then welcome him, he says. Philemon 24. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Okay? Now he's again considered... Not someone that I've got a riff with, but my fellow worker. 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me, to me for ministry. Okay, so we see Mark kind of popping up where you might not have known that he was there, but he is there all throughout. And, and one of the things that we also understand about Mark, and particularly his gospel, is that it was influenced strongly by Peter's testimony. Okay, Mark you know, as you might not know, is not one of the original 12 disciples. Matthew, original 12 disciple. John, one of the 12 disciples. Luke, not one of the original 12 disciples, okay? Uh, So Luke and Mark actually received their primary witness, their primary testimony from a different person, not themselves, okay? Luke primarily receives his testimony from, interestingly, Paul, okay? So Paul you know, received his testimony straight from the Lord after he had risen. And uh, Mark, we understand, received his testimony from serving with Peter. So Mark's gospel is really considered, in some ways, a memoir of Peter's uh, understanding and remembrance of the, the time he spent with Jesus. So we see a lot of that influence throughout the gospel of Mark. All right, so that's Mark. Um, he continues to go on to actually, after being in Rome, evangelize in Egypt, So he goes on to Egypt and establishes churches there and becomes a bishop in that time uh, in Alexandria and is well known uh, there in in Egypt for uh, planting churches. Um, As to the time of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, our understanding is that it was around 65 AD. Um, A number of events kind of push us toward that date of 65 AD, um, including a particular fire that happened in Rome that was then blamed on Christians, and then Christians were persecuted and martyred and, uh, and put into sport with animals in the, in kind of a, uh, uh, kind of, uh, what is it? Colosseum. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Colosseum format. Um, and so we know that it was written kind of after that time, but before Jerusalem fell um, in 70 AD, and, and so the best placement is 65 AD is where we think it may land. Um, we think that the, that the gospel was primarily written to the persecuted church in Rome. So Mark's message is saying to a persecuted church, remember, this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who he's telling about this are, are people who are trying to hide from the persecution of Nero that had become very acute in this time. So we keep that in mind as well as he talks about the kingdom of God and about what God is immediately doing and about the power and victory that is in Jesus Okay, so this is the background of what Mark is speaking into. Um, quick note on some style points for Mark's writing. Okay, you've heard me at nauseum talk about chiasms. Okay, so generally the chiasms we've been talking about kind of look like this first sandwich. Okay, very complicated chiasms A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then back to A or whatever, like very complicated, all right? We've talked about that a little bit. So like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. We've talked about that, that kind of style of writing in the Old Testament. You guys, anybody remember that? 
Yeah, okay, everyone knows the chiasm, great, okay. Mark also uses a form of this uh, that we call sandwiches, actually. Uh, so if this is the Old Testament chiasm sandwich, the next one is Mark's sandwich. Very simple, okay, A, B, A, all right. Bread, meat, bread, bread, meat, bread, bread, meat, okay. So 10 times throughout the Gospel of Mark, in uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 11, uh, three times in chapter 14 and chapter 15 and 16, we see Mark start to tell a story and then give a very important theological point in the middle of that story and then conclude the story. So he's starting a narrative, puts a point in the middle of it, and then ends the narrative, okay? So we're going to see him do that, use these sandwiches, as they're called, as a way to frame up some of the things he wants to get across to us as, hey, you know, your faith is important. I'm putting this right in the middle of this narrative story to emphasize the fact that faith is important as you follow Jesus. And so we'll see some of his emphasis through that time. Okay, but you don't have to worry about that until chapter 3. So put the sandwiches in the fridge. We'll eat them in a few chapters, okay? Okay, cool. Um, so that's some background on the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to jump in now to the verses. Uh, so I know this is like a fire hose of information there, but... If you have questions about that stuff, feel free to let me know, and we can talk through kind of some pieces of it. Um, but first, let's start. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What I'm going to do is walk through these verses kind of one at a time and then come back with uh, some things that I think we need to apply to our lives from this. But uh, verse 1 of Mark says this, The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the beginning... This is what was. So to start his topic, to start his letter, he says, this is what I'm talking about. There were two kind of methods that were used in letter writing at the time, and one of them was this, that you just put your topic out there to start. This is the topic of my letter that I'm sending, okay? And this is what Mark uses. Luke, for instance, says, you know, gives his title, tells who it's written to, and then tells why he is doing that. So there's a couple of different styles. Mark says, at the beginning, okay, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same way, John, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. They use the same kind of style. Okay, so, so Mark says, in the beginning was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news. And so reading about gospel this week, I actually uh, hadn't heard this before, but um, good news, that term, evangelion, okay, is the term for good news that is spoken, the term is not just kind of like any context. Usually, the context was in battle. So good news would come from a battlefield, okay? Someone would come bearing good news about how the battle is going. So their acknowledgement is there is a battle raging, and now good news has come from that battle, okay? And so Mark, now speaking to a persecuted church, says, in the beginning, good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's victory from the battlefield in the gospel of Christ. He is the Son of God. So this is his starting point. He wants to let us know that, th that what I'm writing about is the good news that Jesus has accomplished a victory in this world. And so everything is going to hang off that as we go through. So Mark Verses uh, 2 and 3 say this, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, and actually what happens here is Mark uses three references to prophecy. Uh, some translations of the scripture actually leave out Isaiah because there's a reference to Malachi 3.1, a reference to Isaiah 43, as well as a reference to Zechariah's prophecy of John the Baptist recorded in Luke chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 67 to 79. And so some, some uh, manuscripts have it written this way, as it is written in the prophets, not as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Um, Isaiah is referenced, but there's actually a couple others referenced as well, including Malachi. It says, um, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So who is he talking about is the question, right? That, that there is some sort of preparation that is happening. There's a messenger that has come, and that messenger is found in verse 4. John appeared. 
John is this one that has come to prepare the way. John is the one that is a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John appeared, and what did he do? He was baptizing in the wilderness, and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John appears, and he's out there baptizing for repentance. This is the one that is to prepare the way. So the one preparing the way is saying, we need to repent. We need to be washed. We need to recognize that we are dirty and we are sinful and we need to repent before our God. Um, Verse 5 continues on to say, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So our understanding, I think I've got a map down down below there. Can you click on that? Okay, awesome. So our understanding is that this is kind of the layout of the land, okay? So when it says people from all Judea and Jerusalem were even coming out to him, what he's saying is that people from down there at the bottom, okay, near the Dead Sea at Jerusalem and Judea were coming up all the way to Bethany into Galilee to be baptized by John, who was ministering at the northern portion of the Jordan River. So what they're trying to emphasize is that John has a very large, geographically spread following. People are coming all the way from Jerusalem. Uh, It's like saying people are coming from New York to Florida, okay? That's like kind of the the description that is being had. They're they're coming down to see, right? They're coming to see what, what John's ministry was about and what was happening. They were coming, repenting of their sin, recognizing that John is an interesting figure and he's saying some very powerful things things that are challenging our hearts. And so this movement has come to follow John from great reaches of geography, and they're coming being baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Why might they be baptized in the Jordan? Anybody? Anybody got a... The Jordan River. I mean, we've just been spending a whole series talking about Joshua crossing the Jordan. Anybody know? Why would we baptize in the Jordan? That's right. That's right. So God took the people out of Egypt. Good job, Claire. Awesome input. Hello. Anybody? Nice. Okay. It led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness to the edge of the Jordan, and they crossed the Jordan to begin the conquest of the land. And similar to how they crossed the Red Sea, God parted the Jordan River for them, and they walked through. You might remember during our series that Joshua literally slows down for two chapters to discuss the crossing of the Jordan, which should be a very simple thing, right? They crossed the Jordan. No, like, this is a ceremony. This is an event. This is something to celebrate and recognize that God is establishing something here. And there is covenant renewal that comes after this time of washing in the Jordan. So what does washing in the Jordan, baptizing in the Jordan, remind them of? It reminds them of who are we as a people, Who are we as the children of Israel? We're the one who God called out of Egypt, drew out through the wilderness, and brought into this land. They're returning to their establishment as a country and inheritance that God has given them in the land of Israel. They're washing the Jordan for a reason. They didn't just find some random body of water, which we can do today in the baptism of Jesus. FYI, that's a different baptism, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, But the Jordan River baptism is a calling back to this nation that was established by the hand of God, not by the power of man or his works. And so there they are repenting and saying, we need the Lord to lead our lives and to direct our our steps. They're repenting and confessing their sins, being baptized, totally immersed in the Jordan River. This John, it says in verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Um, What we find in this is that there is a connection here being made between uh, uh, John and uh, and Elijah, who was kind of a similar figure in terms of his, uh, the way he dressed, the way he spoke, his kind of outsider perspective. Um, There's this association given between John and Elijah. Some other similarities in, you know, as well as his kind of uh, being out in the wilderness uh, was that 
Elijah also was found to be very critical of the king of the day, of King Ahab. And you might remember, you know, this is King Ahab who he called out and said, hey, bring your prophets and I'll come meet you there, and we'll light, you know, we'll light, a, we'll light a, a, an offering on fire. And, you know, if, you, if your prophets can call down fire from heaven, then okay, then they're the real prophets. But if I can, then I'm the real prophet, right? He called them out to the table to say, hey, let's, let's have a prophet match, basically, right? They get, get there, and, uh, and, and Elijah's, like, making fun of the prophets because they're doing everything they can to try and start a fire here. You know, like trying to put gas on the thing practically to start a fire, and they cannot get it to light. And Elijah's going, where are your gods, King Ahab? Where, where are these people that you serve? And so Elijah is one that has been critical of a king. And John the Baptist also, we find, is critical of the king, a ruler at the time, Herod, uh, and his relationships uh, with, uh, with women and the kingdom and all this. And so uh, Elijah and John are connected in this way. So John is out here uh, preaching a repentance and a baptism of repentance. So he's uh, you know, this religious movement is happening around him. He's also being critical of the kings of the day. So he's really set himself at odds with kind of all the leadership, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees don't like him. The kings don't like him. There's not a person in, in Jerusalem other than the people that are recognizing something is happening. that say John the Baptist is a good guy. So um, there's this anticipation of a similar moment of revival and renewal that happened after the Mount Carmel episode uh, after Elijah, that is attached to John. They're saying, here's this person that is calling out leaders in the kingdom, and he was calling out the religious and saying, let us follow our God. Let us return to who we are as a people and follow the Lord God Almighty. So John is out there wearing his camel, camel hair and leather belt and, and eating locusts and honey and, and doing his thing. Um, and we look at this picture of, okay, the prophets have said, prepare the way of the Lord. A messenger is coming. And in our heads, the expectation of a messenger that would come to prepare the way of the Lord is not someone that's eating locusts and wild honey, is not someone who's wearing a, a, a very uh, drawn-down attire of camel's hair and a leather belt. That is not who we would expect to be the harbinger of or the leader before the, the Lord comes. You'd expect someone in greater power and greater authority to be stepping up and being the one that is the forerunner. But it is Mark who is out in the wilderness, baptizing in the sticks, practically Galilee, um, and people are coming out even from Judea and Jerusalem to come and see what is going on with this individual, John the Baptist. We think about John the Baptist, and this is the picture we have of this crazy guy with camel's hair, and there must not be very many people following him. But the truth is that John had a tremendous following, okay? As I've said already, people are coming from very far distances to come and be baptized and partake in this renewal moment of the nation. Um, the leaders aren't real excited about it, but the people are. So much so that later when Jesus gets into like a dispute with the leaders of Israel, he says, John the Baptist, was he from heaven or was he from man? He challenges them with a question they cannot answer before the people. Because if they say, you hear it recorded, if they say he is from God, then they have to acknowledge that Jesus has come after him. And if they say he is from man, the people will stone them. Okay? So they're caught in this place because of John's popularity among the people. This crazy, camel-haired, leather belt, wild honey, eating man. Okay, um, so okay. Not only that, right? We know that from Scripture, but we also know that decades later, this is also from Scripture. Paul um, meets disciples of John. Okay, yeah, meets disciples in John who are living in Ephesus. Okay, so decades later, twenty and thirty years later, Paul comes up against people who are still baptizing in the name of John the Baptist. They're taking on a baptism of repentance. Okay. And so that's 30 years later, there's still a movement of followers of John the Baptist that are following his teaching and his movement. So that his movement didn't just stay in Israel, it's expanded beyond Israel, just like Christ did after him. And, you know, we know that, that Paul challenges them to not, to stop uh, sharing a baptism of repentance, but rather be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, his attraction and his influence uh, were, as one person put it, history-making. 
Um, his intentions were not to gain popularity, but to initiate a movement of repentance and reform in Israel to prepare for the one more powerful to come. It's said that uh, just, uh, Josephus, one of the Roman uh, historians, actually records more about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. This is how long and strong the, the impact of John the Baptist's ministry was. Okay? So we think of him as some obscure individual that played a very small part in the gospel, but he was a force. Okay? He was a rock star. All right? People knew him from miles and miles away. His impact was literally history-making. And so what was he saying? Verses 7 and 8. This is what he preached. This rock star, this history-maker. He said this. He's drawing out all these crowds from all over, from Judea and Jerusalem. People are coming to see him and hear what he has to say, and this is what he has to say. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, you think that what I'm doing is a big deal. There is one greater than I that is coming. So often I've read that statement and said, oh yeah, of course, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, duh. But like if you were in this time seeing John the Baptist influence and reach and, 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 uh, and you know, power that is going on with him, you would say, what is greater than John the Baptist? He is challenging the king. He is challenging the religious leaders of the day. Who is greater than John the Baptist? That is going to be something, Right? So they're expecting, again, what we kind of have seen in different places, this person to follow John to be greater than John, right? And that's what he's saying. And so everyone's kind of worked up about what is this person that is coming. So these ideas and feelings of we are going to take our nation back, we're going to be in charge again, and Rome is going to be ostracized out of our land again, and we're going to renew our repentance for it. You can see that the hope in Israel at the time was John is about to usher in a time when Israel takes back their land. The person after John is going to be greater than John, and so now we're set up for Jesus to be the messianic figure that they hoped he would be, the one who would return Israel to the place that it, that it uh, had when they came into the Jordan in the first place. We know as we go through the Gospels that that expectation is crushed over and over again, not because Jesus was doing uh, less than that expectation, but actually because he was doing more than that expectation. So John's message is, I am not the one. After me comes one who is mightier than me. I can't even untie his sandal. In fact, I baptize with just this water. When Jesus baptizes you, he will baptize you with the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're going to find as we walk through Mark that he is straight and to the point and doesn't mince words. We're going to fly through activity. And so the next verses, 9 to 11, show us Jesus shows up, the baptism of Jesus. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Baptism, we understand, is this picture of judgment, right? Even the repentance baptism is a recognition that I deserve a water judgment. I, I need to be washed, okay, because I've got sin. I need the sin washed off of me. And when we're baptized in Christ, we're, what we're saying in that picture is that I am buried with Christ in baptism, and I'm raised to new life out of the waters of judgment, Okay? What I deserve is the death that water brings, and what I've been given is resurrection life in Christ Jesus. Okay, so when Jesus goes down into the waters, it's supposed to be this judgment ceremony of water coming over him, but instead when he comes out, a voice comes from heaven and says, I'm well pleased with my son. The spirit comes down on him at that time. The picture is, there is no sin in this man. 
There's no judgment to be had by this water. It cannot hold him. I don't know about you, but I, I didn't get torn heavens when I was baptized. Anybody get torn heavens when they were baptized? No? All right, weird. That's crazy. Yeah. Right? The, the point is, like, we deserve that. That's what we deserve is the water. But through the power of Christ, we're raised up. When Christ goes down in the water and he's risen up, the Lord says, I'm proud of this man. This is my son. I'm well pleased in him. So John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. I mean, I just love that, I mean, sorry. I didn't even, I didn't even plan this, but like, I just love that we're talking about the Jordan River in the gospel. I never saw that before. I don't know about you guys, but I never saw that. When I, when I read Mark before this, I never realized the significance of Jordan River. And here it is. The baptism is happening here in the Jordan. Of course. It makes perfect sense. What other place would they be baptizing other than the place that God says, this is where you receive your inheritance. This is where you're going to walk into what I have prepared for you. So a new era has begun, and Jesus is baptized. And the first thing that happens to Jesus after this baptism is the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The number of times you're going to hear John, uh, Mark say immediately is uh, 36. 36 times in the Gospel you're going to hear Mark say immediately, and then they immediately, and then uh, he'll also say again 31 times. Okay? He is just getting us straight through this very fast. And when I say fast, I mean like 42 weeks fast. Okay? Like that fast. Okay? <laughs> Uh, we've got some wagers on that. 40, anyone, anyone else got a guess on how long the series is going to last? 42? No? Okay. Abraham said one, so you guys got to hang around for a minute because we've got to get through 16 chapters. So. Um, okay, so the Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness after this baptism, and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Um, I don't know about you, but the thing that stuck out to us on Thursday as we're reading this is that he's with the wild animals. I never, never saw that before. We're like, what is the point of the wild animals being mentioned? I don't think it's mentioned in any of the other accounts of Jesus' temptation. Um, but Jesus is, after his baptism, immediately driven out to the wilderness and there for 40 days, tempted by Satan with wild animals while angels are ministering to him. We see the wilderness as a place, and you recognize it from our time in the Old Testament, as a place where uh, God is there. I mean, he's gracefully ministering to the people as they wander in the wilderness, right, the 40 years. He is still providing for them, but as a place where they have to be uh, wrestling with their sin and brokenness, okay? Uh, and we see Moses even retreat to the wilderness, and God show up in that time when he is wrestling after he killed the Egyptian. We see uh, John the Baptist here ministering in the wilderness. This picture of the wilderness is a place um, that is powerful. Here Jesus is being tempted uh, by Satan in the wilderness. For 40 days he is there among the wild animals, and the angels are there ministering to him. Um... I think I'm going to circle back to some of that here in just a minute. Just like keep that idea in your, your mind that the first thing that Jesus did after he uh, was baptized is go into this temptation time with Satan, this time in the wilderness where God is challenging him, and yet he is being provided for by the angels. Okay, so what do we take from chapter 1? Again, I'm going to come back to that theme here in a minute as we kind of wrap things up, but I just want you to keep that picture of the wilderness in your mind, okay? Um, what do we take from this chapter, starting out this gospel, how Mark starts it out? Um, I've got a few things that I want to share with you that the Lord put on my heart, and the, the first one is this. Uh, are we asking the question, uh, WWJD or WWJTBD? Okay. Uh, I mean, which band should we be wearing? What would Jesus do or what would John the Baptist do? Anyone remember have, having that bracelet? Did anyone have that bracelet? The what would Jesus do? One, two, three. Anyone? Four, five. You had one? Okay, cool. That's it's still happening. It's still a thing? Nice. All right, cool. Um, so it's a good question, like, what would Jesus do, right? It's an important question to think about what would Jesus do, like, because he's a great teacher and has taught us how to love sacrificially, and there's a lot that we can learn from that question. But sometimes we can take that question a little too far. 
in our lives with people that we want to know the Lord. Sometimes we need to be John the Baptist and ask, what would John the Baptist do? Okay? Um, and let me explain that a little bit. Uh, you know, John the Baptist is this one who prepares the way for the Lord. You can see John's humility. He says, when Jesus comes, I won't be even worthy to untie his sandals. I, I can't even approach his glory. He's going to be so amazing. I, I baptize with this water, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Like, they're totally different in their power. And too often in our hearts, we can want to be the Savior for people, right? We can look at people around our lives and want to, want to get them to accept Jesus. You get, you know, Jesus is great. You should, t- you should have him. He's going to change your life. But sometimes what God is calling us to do, rather than to like push people into Jesus and try, like step in for them and be their Savior and, and walk them along this decision and help, help them make the decision, is just be John the Baptist before them. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like what we learned about John today. Set yourselves apart from the world. Right? John is not worried about what the world thinks. He is, he is setting himself apart from what the world is doing. See, I'm going to a place where I can focus on Christ. Okay? Not saying you got to go out to the Jordan River or in the wilderness or whatever, but like in your spirit, in your emotion, in your desire in this life, what are we placing our desires in? Building a kingdom here on earth or seeing what God wants to do with our life? I want to be like John the Baptist in that. He wasn't worried about the, what the kings or religious leaders thought. He was worried about what God thought of him and what God had called him to do. And in that, John the Baptist has this amazing following to set a platform here ready for Jesus to step on the stage. You don't have to be Jesus for people. Let Jesus be Jesus, okay? Let's be John the Baptist sometimes. We set ourselves apart from the world. We seek the will of the Lord, and we share that good news is coming. Something that is more powerful than I could ever give you is coming, and I want you to meet him, but I am not him. He is something more powerful, more greater, something I cannot even approach. I cannot, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. If we learn anything from what John the Baptist did, let's learn that he humbly sets himself apart from the world, seeks the will of the Lord, and says, hey, get your eyes open, because Jesus wants to encounter you. Jesus wants to change your life. I can't change your life, okay? Uh, my church can't change your life. The, uh, an emotional experience at a conference can't change your life. Okay, all these things that we do as religious practice to enjoy the presence of God even, and, and like all these things that we can kind of build up as things we do in church life, okay, those things don't save us. Jesus is the one that saves us. Now, those things point us to him and exalt him and give him praise and give him glory and all that. But the saving is not in those things. The saving is in the work of Christ himself. So we can't let ourselves try and become Jesus for people. We have to let Jesus be Jesus for people. Let's be more like John the Baptist. Set yourself apart. Seek the will of the Lord. And be ready. Be ready to share You know what the good news is? I can't help you. That's the good news. That's the good news. I can't help you. There's nothing in me or anybody else that can save you. Only Jesus can. So second, the message of this gospel is that victory has come. Right? The good news that John is sharing is that victory has come. The good news that Mark is replaying for us is good news has come. There's a battle out there raging. And let me tell you something, victory is here already. Back to this idea of the wilderness and the wild beasts. The wilderness was this place of testing and deliverance. It was a place of repentance and yet God's grace. It was a proving ground in some ways for so many people. In particular, to the recipients of Mark's gospel... He wants to speak to the very real threats that they are facing. The wild beasts that Mark 
pushes forward? Mark is saying Jesus was tempted among the wild beasts. The wild beasts are out there in the wilderness, and they are not defeating Jesus because he's being ministered to by the angels. Why is that picture important to the recipients of Mark's gospel? It's important because what Mark's recipients are receiving currently in the place of Rome is the threat of death by Nero the emperor. Okay? The message that they need to hear is that, hey, I know that persecution is fraught here, but let me tell you something different. Victory is here. You have victory. We don't know exactly the time, um, but our understanding is that both Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome around the time of Mark's writing of his gospel. So think about Mark, this person who has served both Paul in you know, some interesting ways, you know, some, sometimes good, sometimes rough, okay? and Peter who considers him a son, okay? and Mark is now wrestling with either soon the loss of or recently the loss of both of his mentors to martyrdom in Rome. And Mark is the one to say, victory has come. Mark's message to the Christians in Rome is that Jesus has given us victory in every single circumstance. When you're among the wild beasts, when you're out in the wilderness, God has not forsaken you. He is with you and has given you victory in Christ. It challenges us, because I know all of us have been through times where we are in the wilderness. We do not know what in the world God is doing. You're out there in a desert. You're like, okay, I know I'm supposed to be here, but it doesn't look right. Things are rough. They're not turning out the way you expect them to. Wild beasts might be attacking you, you know, whatever it is, right? You have all been there. I've been there. And what this presses us to is that we are weak. It reminded me this morning of Romans 8, verses 26 to 28, which says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hopefully, when you're in a time of wilderness, the first place you go is to the Lord and cry out to him and pray to him. But the problem with the wilderness is that you don't usually know what to pray because you're in a desert and you're like, I don't even know where the provision is going to come from. I don't even know what the next step is because all I see is like sand, you know? Like, there isn't a clear direction when you're in the wilderness. And so this challenge that everything's going to work out for the good of those who love him is in the context of you don't know what to pray in this time. And so what do you do? You go before the Lord and you let the spirit who is now in you because of Jesus groan within you for what God wants to do in you. Imagine the kids that are being raised okay, in the wilderness time of Joshua. Let's go back to that, right? Their parents rejected the inheritance of the land. And now, for 40 years, children and men and women are being raised up under this generation that rejected God's hand. Imagine what they're praying as they come into adulthood and wonder, what are we going to do when it's our turn? And how long are we going to be out here? 40 years? Okay, I'm 13. I've got, uh, okay, 30, 20, 27 more years. Like, when are they realizing that at some point they too are going to have to make this, this decision whether to follow the Lord or reject him like their parents did? That's some time of groaning in the spirit, okay? And we each have been there in that place where we're in the wilderness. And Mark's message to us is that victory has come. Let the spirit groan within you for what God has for you when you're there in the wilderness. His victory is not one of temporal measurement. Mark is telling him, yeah, martyrdom might come, and it has come for some of my people. But this victory that has come is good news from the battlefield. It may not be in temporal measure. So often we look for something that's going to be provision or, or victory. But the victory of the Lord, okay, is not a political victory. 
It is not a military victory. It is not a temporary victory. It is not a victory of wealth, okay? Those things may come, and we rejoice when those things come. They're blessings, right? That's good. We're not going to say they're bad. But if our hope in Christ is for a victory that is temporal in any way, then we have missed the point completely. Because the victory that has come is one that overcomes death and the grave. It is an eternal victory that can be heard by a persecuted church and say, yes, I still believe in the Lord Jesus, even though Nero is knocking at my door. Okay, that's the victory that God has given us in Christ Jesus, that there is no fear of death and the grave, that he has conquered sin and death, and we can stand boldly in the victory and good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what it is that he's accomplished for us. Again, Jesus is baptized, right? And when he's baptized, God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then he goes out and is tempted. Look at this picture of Jesus right from the outset of Mark. He is the son with whom God is well pleased, yet he is tempted in the wilderness. I could not help but remember Hebrews 4, verses 4 to 16. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Going on, he says, in the days of his flesh, verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 7 to 10, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, Jesus knows what it's like to be in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like, yet he endured it without sin. And so we have a great high priest in Jesus. And just remember, listen to that description again. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save, yet God did not save him from the cross. He let him go to the cross. Jesus was not concerned with temporal measures of victory. He was concerned with the victory in your soul. He died that you might live. He died that you might be baptized with the very presence of the Holy Spirit. That the presence of God could live in you and direct your path. That when you're walking in times of wilderness, the Spirit would groan out for you and bring you comfort in a time when you don't know where the answers are coming from. Just as angels came and ministered to Jesus in this time of temptation, Hebrews also testifies that angels too minister to you. Hebrews 1, 13 to 14 says this, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stepstool, footstool for your feet? Are they not, the angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, you're not alone. Yeah, I, don't, I don't pretend to understand angels. But you're not alone, okay? God is ministering to you in his very presence through the Holy Spirit and somehow powerfully through angels, okay? Like, that's crazy. The same angels that are ministering to Jesus, like, as if Jesus needed angels to minister to him, right? Like, break that paradigm in your head. Like, angels are ministering to Jesus in the desert during his temptation. And so, too, still, God is using angels to minister to you in this time, and so know that, yeah, you're walking through a wilderness and you don't know where provision is coming from, but victory is here. It has come in Christ Jesus. So I challenge us, um, you know, whatever you're going through this week, whatever is going on, take it to the Lord. We can try and come up with complicated solutions to problems and all that. But if we don't go before the Lord in groaning and prayer and ask him to direct us, okay, there are a thousand solutions to every problem. There are so many opinions, like, to everything, right? And whoever wanted, like, a second opinion when you go to a doctor and maybe, like, a third one and then a fourth one, like, right? 
There are so many ways to skin the cat in our life, right? Like there's just so many. But whenever you're in the wilderness, go to the Lord. Cry out to him and ask him for his answer. He's willing to speak to you. He's ready to speak to you. He knows that there are real threats, that are wild beasts there in the wilderness attacking you. He knows that Satan is tempting you. But he is not unaware of this. And he's ready to call, call out to you and encourage you and be there with you and pray for you. So much so that he offered himself on a cross. He understood our temptation, yet without sin. And because of that, we can boldly go before his throne in prayer and ask him for his help in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus, the good news that there is a battlefield out here, but you have won. God, we pray that um, you would have victory in our hearts. Lord, when we're nervous, when we're anxious, when we're out in the wilderness and don't know where help is coming from or what is the next thing to do, that we would trust you, that we would follow you, they would let you intercede on our behalf. God, we pray that um, we would know there's no circumstance that we can face that you're not with us. So Lord, we yield ourselves to you. Pray you would have our way in our hearts. Lord, pray um, that we would, like John the Baptist, humbly follow you set ourselves apart from this world and all its desires and, and uh, wants and pursue your heart. Not worrying about what other people think of us or, um, or anything, God, that we would just be trusting in who you are and what you've called us to do. Help us not try and be Jesus for anybody. Help us point everybody to you, that you would be seen as the Most High that we would prepare the way for the king that has come, that victory could be had in the hearts of men. Not in some temporal way, not in some political and military fashion, but rather for eternity. God, conquer our souls with your love. We want to be full of you. We want you to be lifted high in our hearts, in our world, in our love for this world. We want to see you lifted, God. We thank you for um, the challenge from Scripture today. Help us rest in this truth that victory has come. Help us stand in faith knowing that all things work to the good of those who love you. Not because it's easy, but in spite of the fact that it's hard. So God, we trust you and we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.